What's up, everyone? This is Anthony Pompliano. Most of you know me as Pomp. You're listening to the Pomp Podcast, simply the best podcast out there. Let's kick this thing off. Phaedra Ellis Lampkins is an American social justice advocate and the co-founder and CEO of Promise, a California-based company reworking the bail system. In this conversation, we discuss the devaluing of content, radical honesty, criminal justice reform, bail reform, and how technology can solve society's problems in a for-profit model. I really enjoyed this conversation with Phaedra, and I hope you do as well. But before we get into the episode, I want to quickly talk about our sponsors. The first is Helium. The world should be more connected, but it isn't. We should be living in one of the ages of the Jetsons, yet it feels like we're still in the age of the Flintstones. The only way to connect to the internet outdoors is by using cellular technologies. It just makes no sense. Wouldn't it make way more sense if all these things had a network that worked just for them anywhere and anytime? Well, now they do. That's what the Helium Hotspot does. The Helium Hotspot is a new product that enables the people, not the telcos, to own and operate a wireless network in their city for Internet of Things devices. That's right. It democratizes the ownership of a wireless network. So you can literally earn crypto for helping to build the network and providing connectivity to the Internet of Things devices by sending small bits of data. Join the movement and get the Helium Hotspot today with $50 off using the code POMP at helium.com. H-E-L-I-U-M dot com. I've got one set up and you should too. Helium Hotspot, help democratize access and ownership of a wireless network today. Helium.com. Also, don't forget that I write a daily letter to over 50,000 investors about business technology and finance. I break down complex topics in the easy to understand language while sharing opinions on various aspects of each industry. You can subscribe at pompletter.com. Again, pompletter.com. All right, let's get into this episode with Phaedra. I hope you guys enjoy it. Anthony Pompliano is a partner at Morgan Creek Digital. All opinions expressed by Pomp or his guests on this podcast are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Morgan Creek Digital or Morgan Creek Capital Management. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Pomp as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. All right, guys. Bang, bang. Super excited about this conversation. We're going to do a lot of learning today. Uh, Feedra, thank you so much for uh, for doing this. I'm happy to be here. I mean, happy to be in anything that starts with bang, bang. It's like, <laughs> it's like, <laughs> okay, I'm ready. All right. So let's start with your background. You're doing awesome work now, but you've had a, a bunch of cool things you've done in your past. So let's start there and then we can get into, uh, into some of the bail reform stuff. Sure. Um, so I started in the labor movement. I was um, an organizer and really focused on how did you improve the lives of low-wage workers, and then ended up running um, a labor federation. Um, in addition, we had a nonprofit policy organization that worked to leverage the political power of the labor movement for moral policies. So things like how do you create living wage for uh, service sector workers? How do you have healthcare benefits for kids regardless of documentation? And so spent 13 years really trying to just figure out how did you improve the lives of working people? And from there, um, was, became really interested in the kind of dichotomy between um, the labor movement and the environmental movement and was struck by the fact that people, we often made choices in the labor movement. We were faced with like good jobs or pollution. Like we didn't have great choices. 
And so it just, I wanted to understand what would good choices look like? Could you create an economy that was sustainable for working people? And so I went and ran an organization called Green for All. And it had been founded by my friend Van Jones, who had gone on to the White House. And um, so I spent a couple of years doing that work um, and learned a lot. Um, it was the last nonprofit I was in. Um, so I learned a lot about kind of what worked and what didn't. And then ended up um, working in music. I worked for the musician Prince after that. And then after I worked for Prince, I became very interested in how technology was impacting music and especially artists of color. And what was uh, fascinating to me is that technology had not been a positive force from my perspective in the labor movement, specifically low-wage workers, the kind of who was core to the firm changed and all of a sudden service sector workers were making lower wages, they no longer were employees. And what I observed in music is that uh, basically the devaluing of content um, meant that kind of legacy artists or artists of color, the content was worthless. And so I wanted to understand um, what worked and I didn't want to go back to school. So I went um, to work at a company called Honor. And I went and ran, um, I went there to run operations and then ended up running operations and revenue. And uh, I was there for a couple of years and enjoyed it a lot. I learned a lot, a lot there. Um, and then decided to start my own company because uh, I learned a lot from Seth, who is a CEO, um, both raising money with him. Um, I, I, I had this idea that uh, raising money was not complicated and <laughs> that it was very, uh, and that uh, really that technology allowed you to figure out, like you could do anything. And I wanted our folks to have technology. So I got to ask, the, uh, the working with Prince isn't exactly what most people get to spend uh, part of their career doing. What was that like and, and kind of what did you do there? Um, so I uh, acted as kind of, uh, I made sure that his world worked. My first job was to negotiate uh, with a lawyer to get his master's back. And I actually did it during my maternity leave. And so I didn't intend to work for him. Um, uh, Van was like, oh, Phaedra can do anything. And so we did that and then we got his master's back and he just basically was like, you shall never leave. Um, and so then I ended up working for him very oddly. Um, I think that's really interesting. Um, one, I, um, I didn't know a lot about music and, um, and so I learned a lot about music. I learned a lot, um, from him about, um, really uh, what it takes, I think, to be excellent. And, um, he practiced every day, even though as an amazing musician as he was, he practiced every day. And that for me was very impressive. Um, and uh, I learned a lot about just commitment to art. And I think he's probably the most radical political person I know. And so also just watching how he used music for leverage in the public space. Um, so I just learned a lot. Um, and my favorite part about music is I felt like people were much more honest. Um, I had a meeting with a president of a record company and he said, we wanna talk about exploitation and how to exploit your music. And I was like, this is the most honest discussion. Like they call using something exploitation in music. And so I was like, oh, like this, this I can deal with. You want to exploit the music, got it. Okay, check. Like I liked that level of transparency that it's like, we just want to exploit you. So there's no pretense, like let's be friends. It's like, we're going to exploit your music. So I was like, this is the cleanest terms I've ever learned and used. So obviously he was brilliant and amazing. Um, and I learned a lot. Um, and also made some, uh, just learned a lot about the way the world worked. The world would be a much better place if radical honesty like that was used everywhere, right? right. Like, <laughs> we're going to exploit it. I was like, wait, okay, that's what, okay, cool. Like, got it. We've established the norm for how we talk about things, which I thought that was the most transparent communication I'd seen in a long time. 
Yeah, I I, um, I didn't know very little about the music industry, but I recently watched, uh, there's a two-part documentary on Netflix uh, about Garth Brooks, and they go through a lot of the early days and, and kind of all of the nuances around, you know, the songwriter and who has rights mm -hmm. and then who chooses to perform the songs and how the money gets uh, divvied up from mm -hmm. uh, concerts and all stuff. And, and you realize very quickly, like, this is one, a massive business, but two mm -hmm. is... Uh, the longevity uh, in terms of revenue for a lot of these artists. Uh, mm -hmm. It sounds like things like the, you know, the masters is super important over long periods of time. Uh, mm -hmm. And most people are young and they do get exploited. Right. And, and they kind of just mm -hmm. get taken advantage of and, and mm -hmm. they end up not being a good spot. Yeah. I know it's funny. We would see people and they'd be like, Oh my gosh, I got a million dollar deal. And you'd say like, Oh, that sounds so great. But then you would realize is they got a three album deal that they had to sell X amount and they got a $10,000 advance and it wasn't actually as great as they thought. So that was one thing I learned a lot about. I, I don't know if, uh, if you've ever heard Bill Burr, the comedian, talk about Hollywood accounting is a, is a term that he uses. And he basically says ho Hollywood accounting is something like we do a deal, you get 60% of uh, profits, I get 40%. But then there's a bunch of clauses in there that say that I pay for everything. Uh, so it's not really a profit, it's actually a revenue split, but after I pay for everything. And so it ends up being more like 90-10 rather than the 60-40 I thought I was getting. And he calls that yeah. Hollywood. Yeah, it's definitely Hollywood accounting. <laughs> and so how do you go from that? You go to Honor, right? You learn a ton there. That's, that's actually uh, Ruben Harris uh, worked with you there and, and who uh, so kindly introduced us. But then how do you start to understand um, a lot of the uh, criminal justice reform issues and, and bail reform? Uh, I'm lucky that Van Jones, who uh, was a friend, uh, and a woman named Diana Frappier, who I started uh, Promise with, we'd all worked together in different ways for about 12 years. Diana and Van founded the Ella Baker Center, and it was focused on criminal justice reform. And so, and then um, became very interested in it. Um, really related to the my observations around kind of what was happening. And I think it's one of those things where if you don't, we all, I think, have people we love who've been impacted by the criminal justice system. And what I was um, struck by is just the numbers. And so the fact like that two-thirds of the people that were incarcerated were there um, uh, in jails, like mostly county jails, were there and that they hadn't been convicted of the crime that they were arrested for, I think you know, like you feel like your family, I always say like when it's your family member, you're like, this is someone who's dealing with addiction or mental health issues and you see it, but oftentimes people don't see it for other people's family members. And I think when I saw the statistics and I start to felt them in my own life through my own personal family's experience, I just was like, this is, it's such a corrupt, broken system. And, um, and the more I'm in it, the more corrupt I believe it is. Um, and, um, and so it's just been, so I just became interested just based on the statistics of what and who was happening. And, um, and that just became very interesting to me. And then working in it and realizing that if you are poor, black or brown, the system is just designed to incarcerate you. And it works hard. I mean, the fact that people are in jail for parking tickets, like to me, that is just, it is only because you are poor. Okay, so I really want to kind of drill into this because this is the, to me, the meat of the issue is most people some of the things you just said, they don't even know exist, right? So simple things, uh, some of the data I've seen you share before is uh, 2 million prisoners are nonviolent and awaiting trial. 70% of people in county jails have not yet been convicted of a crime. Mm -hmm. 
there are example after example after example all across the country where people do uh, things that you and I would think of as fairly petty, uh, really rule breaking. I don't even think of you know a parking ticket as a crime necessarily, right? Yeah. But they end up right, yeah, and, and and they end up basically uh, in jail. So let's start just with how do we get from uh, something that is uh, not considered a violent crime or, or something that is you know quote unquote serious. How do we end up putting people in jail? Like, how do they get there versus somebody who gets a parking ticket, they pay it, and, and you know they could never even imagine going to jail for something like that? Yeah, I mean, I think one is you start with over-policing, right? Which is who's most likely to get a ticket, right? And the reality is the poorer, the blacker, the browner, the neighborhood, the more likely you are to get a ticket in it, the more likely you are. I mean, I... I did uh, something with an organization called Defy, which is where you go volunteer in a prison, and then it's mostly tech folks. And it was so interesting because for all these tech folks, uh, folks who were in jail, one guy said, I'm in jail for seven years, I did this, and all the tech folks were like, I did that, I did that. And, um, and so just the stark reality that someone in America experiences the exact same thing, does the exact same thing, and they, there are no consequences because they have the resources to stop the consequences. So one is just starts with the over-policing. And so the likelihood that you're more likely to get a ticket, the more likelihood you're more likely to be arrested. Um, and then I think uh, the way it works, we've seen it, is you might get a parking ticket. And this, uh, in some states, it doesn't work like this. In some states, you can't go to jail for having a parking ticket, which is great. Um, you might get a parking ticket. And then usually what happens is that you can't afford to pay it. And so either the fee increases or the consequence happens. So it might be you lose your driver's license. And then you're driving on a driver's license and you get arrested for a suspended driver's license. And so one thing is we were sitting in Michigan and we were talking with some um, folks about our software and we were looking at who are the people most likely to not show up for court. And what we saw is it was people who were driving on suspended driver's licenses. And so you thought they were, we were talking about what should, they were saying, oh, bail should probably be high. And the idea that it's mostly working people who have kids, who have jobs, who are trying to drive their kids to school and that those folks are the people that pay the consequences or face jail because they're broke it is, is not, I think, what the system is designed to do. And I think you're seeing a lot of that right now where people are saying, look, the, the police are not acting in a way that's consistent with trying to uphold law. It's more about kind of the oppression of some versus the oppression of others. And, um, and so that's it. So you, you end up in, in jail. Basically, you can't pay something. The consequences increase. And we look at it like we uh, just uh, started a new software. And the reason we did is because we found payments were really difficult. And so we launched a second software, a second product called Promise Pay. And the reason is, is because we were looking at parking tickets. How do people end up in trouble? And we looked at one city and we said, how could I, like if I want to put myself on a payment plan? And the requirement was you have to owe over like $500. So you have to wait until it's so expensive. Then you have to pay 50% upfront. Then you have to bring your tax returns to prove that you deserve to put yourself on a payment plan. And you have to go down to this office downtown during the work week. Like it's just, the system isn't designed to make someone successful. And so part of what we thought about is how do you build kind of products that actually are designed for people to succeed? Could you imagine if I called my cable bill and I said, I can't pay it. And they said, well, bring your tax returns, come down, <laughs> pay half up front. Like it's not, it's not reasonable. Yeah, and it feels like um, some of this is uh, intentional, and then some of it is just, frankly, uh, you've got bureaucratic organizations that have no clue the realities on the ground, right? So something as simple as, uh, you know, a, a quote-unquote good-intentioned rule is, hey, bring your tax plan. We'd love to get you on a payment plan. Sounds like we're helping people, but for all the reasons you're explaining, actually end up 
causing more and more of a problem, right? Yeah, you know, it's weird. Until I was in the system, I thought it was just like racism or other folks. When you're in it, you realize the system is actually designed that way. And the more I'm in it, the more I see it. I joke that being in the system, I've become a conspiracy theorist. And, um, and for me, it was made clear when someone said to me, I said, oh, this product will work this way. It'll be great. And the person who runs the system said, oh, that's, this is a difference. I don't care about people in the system. And I was like, that level of clarity of just, we don't care about people in the system um, was, was very important for me to understand. I remember someone saying about a prison system that we talked to and they said, you know, we wouldn't let our dogs be in this prison. And so the idea that the people who might be operating a system don't think that dog, their own dog should be in that system or have no care um, speaks to how the system works. And you know, so I think I've definitely become more, I think the system is, is working the way it was designed to work. So explain that a little bit more. When you say designed this way, do you mean um, designed to imprison people and this is more of like the private prison type uh, you know, issues? Or is this uh, more of just putting as many obstacles in place as possible uh, and then therefore that either leads to more revenue for the government and possibly jail time or, or kind of just clarify that a little bit? It, um, to me, I think there's a dehumanization of black and brown people and, and poor people. And then I think it, there is just the reality of the consequences. Um, I, like, uh, no system that p punishes people for not having money is when it's government. It's one thing, right? If I get a product and I'm doing something and then I don't pay for it, that's very different than the assumption that you're going to pay for something that the government provides or that the consequences. Like I realized it, where I live, they have they turn you into collections for library fees, and um, which is you know not doesn't make any sense uh, to me. So I I think the system just works in the way and that it criminalizes um, things like poverty. It criminalizes, and the consequences are very different if you have good representation. As an example, um, one of uh, what's been great about our work is we have people volunteer to help us. And we have had a number of people who have had um, um, issues with the SEC try to come to us and say, hey, we get this system stinks and how it's awful. And when you have good representation, you face you, you, the consequences are very different than someone who has bad representation. And where we see it is we see it in um, someone, let's say you are waiting in court, you're, you have a, you know, you go to court, you have some type of thing you've been charged with then you end up waiting in jail. Because remember, you can't afford bail, so you're sitting in jail, so then you take a plea deal. And the plea deal has um, no time associated with it, but you can go back to jail with a technical violation. A technical violation could be you miss a meeting with your probation officer, you go, to what we saw an example, someone got married outside of the county, so they technically left the county. And so uh, uh, people end up in jail a lot for technical violations. And often because due process goes away with a technical violation. So you don't have a right to a trial in the same way anymore. And so that's, I think, how the system doesn't work is I can't afford to get out. So I take a plea deal that might not make sense for me. And then I end up in trouble with a technical violation that takes away due process. And so one of the things it sounds like um, is when you gave the example of you can get on these payment plans, but you have to actually go down, you've got to bring tax uh, forms, all that kind of stuff. There's almost like an education component to this, right? If you know the rules and you understand the correct path to pursue, you may be able to deal with a system that is already rigged against you, right? And, and it sounds like that's what you guys are doing at Promises. You guys have kind of the muscle memory, you understand the system, and you're building products to try to solve and, and make that easier for people to interface with the system. Is that, is that accurate? 
Yeah, I think what we've discovered is we want to work in places that people's incentives are aligned. So for example, what we like about payments is no one wants to face the consequences of not having money. And the government wants to get money as quickly and easy as possible. Because often what it does is it sells its debt as distressed debt to folks and gets 20 cents on the dollar, or it pays to track folks down and then they face those consequences. And so we said, look, one thing that's good is when those incentives are aligned, because as a company, we don't want to be in a place where the incentives are to incarcerate people. You know, like that's the, the part of kind of our value as a company. So where are those incentives aligned? So then what we think about is things like payments is how do you make it as easy as possible? One, there's already programs that, pe that exist. So people should know you can qualify for something and not have to figure out how to go somewhere and register and do stuff. And I think COVID presents a lot of opportunities for us because all of a sudden people can't go into offices. Um, and so, so anyway, so it allows someone to, the software we currently done is called Promise Pay. You can go on, you can self-identify and say, this is my income. Then you qualify for a program. We put you on a payment plan. We do things like subscriptions because it doesn't make sense that every month you have to remember. We do reminders by text, use Cash App, Venmo, and other ways. Not the assumption is you're going to have a check um, or a credit card that is secured. And so just trying to make it as easy as possible for people to pay. Got it. And then I guess as part of this, uh, there's all the work that you can do to keep people from being incarcerated, right? So this is everything from help them pay to uh, prevent kind of the escalation of consequences or uh, the fines, get them better representation, all that. At some point, though, some portion of the population is going to go to jail. And, and so there's kind of two components is the way I think about that. There's jail and there's prison, right? And jail is uh, the 70% of people who have uh, not even been convicted yet. We need to figure out how do we get them out of jail, especially when they're nonviolent offenders, all that kind of stuff. And so um, that's one piece. The prison component, I don't want to spend a lot of time on that. I feel like I could record a whole other episode on, on what happens once somebody's actually convicted. But specifically around the jail uh, and bail, I think that's probably the one thing that as I learned more and more about it was the most shocking to me, was this whole idea that literally because you do not have enough money, you now have to go sit in jail. Whereas if you had as little as 500 bucks, right, all the way up to a couple of thousand dollars, you could have your freedom and go and, and make a living, do whatever you want while you're awaiting your trial. So maybe kind of just talk through like how you've, you know, kind of understood this and the problems you've seen specifically around that bail and, and the issues there? Yeah, I mean, the biggest issue that we see around bail is it's, it's basically poor people uh, being in jail because they can't afford to get out, right? The reality is we're not assessing whether someone is dangerous or not, because if I can pay $100, it's not as though I'm less dangerous because I can afford to pay, right? And just as a reminder how bail works, is there's usually a schedule of bail and it's based on usually what you're charged with, which is usually determined by the cop. So a cop brings you in and says, hey, I've arrested so-and-so. It's one person they can look at and say, okay, I'm arresting you for a DUI. A second person they can arrest and say, I'm arresting you for excessive speed. And those all have different consequences. So one is it's important to know where does that charging happen, right? They're not formally charged. They've just been arrested. And it's based on the decision of the arresting officer usually for bail at least. So then there's a bail schedule and that determines the specific thing. So you already are now kind of in a system where we know racism exists and we're stuck based on whatever the cop thinks is what's appropriate. Then you get to the system and then you have a bail schedule. So based on what you're arrested for that you can pay. And usually there's a bail agency that is like you pay 10% and, um, and sometimes people don't have that 10%. So if you don't have the 10%, you stay in jail. 
And, um, and so that system for us is very broken. And I will say one thing, I think to your point about, I think we use this language of also um, folks who are not violent, but it's important to know what is violence look like in the criminal justice system. So when we first started working, we're like, oh, we're gonna work with nonviolent offenders. And then we, um, one of our clients um, walked us through and we said, okay, I said like, what's the most violent offense just so I can understand most likely to happen. And it was people stealing cell phones. And it's a violent offense if I take it off a person, it's not, and they feel threatened, it's not if I take it off of a stand. So I was like, no one's telling, this is where kids don't know, like, and it's mostly people that are young under 21 that get arrested for it. So all of a sudden you have a violent, uh, like, so when we think about who we work with, that's, that's who a violent criminal might be according to what your arrest is. And so that's why I think it's important for us to make the case that the idea that you're innocent until proven guilty and really bail should be um, a way for folks to determine like it's supposed to be risk level instead of what it is right now, which is finances. Yeah. And, and my understanding, and, and you are by far an expert compared to me, is around these bail bondsmen, right? Is there's a lot of kind of, I'll call it malicious, nefarious activity where they literally as close to the county jail as they can get. They've got their number plastered everywhere. Uh, I've literally seen bail bondsmen in colleges that are like, you know, if you get arrested with our shirt on and use it in the, uh, you know, in, in basically the uh, the photo, you get 10% off, like I mean, all kinds of crazy, crazy stuff. Uh, they actually are helping or are they uh, kind of making the situation worse because the terms of the bail uh, that they help with is so bad? I think one thing to remember for folks who don't know is that bail is basically a surety or an insurance business. So what happens is if I'm a local bail bonds person, I'm probably paying an insurance uh, product one to 3%. But most of actually bail bonds are done by a couple of big insurance companies and there might be a local franchise. And so I think what's, what's bad about it is one, it's the best financial product for those insurance providers because very few people don't show up for court. And if they do, you, the court has to make sure that you pay something. So one is someone's paying a lot of stuff. So like we talked to a startup where they think we could charge one to 3% easily and make money. So one is there's a lot of profit driven in there. And I think it's not awful. Like from my perspective, it's not as though people shouldn't make profit. The idea is when the consequences are severe and it's the poorest folks that are paying the most, that system is broken. And so I think what's broken is you have a system that's built on people's poverty and pain. And I don't think that's how we should build systems. And so, um, and you are often paying a higher bail amount because you don't have a lot of like, you don't have a house, you don't have something else. So it's like, it's just a self-perpetuating system. So you look at like, should people pay, pay bail if they're innocent? And we know many people are likely to not be charged. And then it's like, should the system be determined by how much you can pay? So the problems are uh, pretty obvious once you start looking and learning, right? And, and I think that you've obviously spent a lot of time doing that. Uh, at some point you decided, I want to go solve some of this. Maybe talk me through just like, what was the impetus for actually starting a company, building software? And then what do you think those solutions look like, both what you've built already and then kind of where you, you think opportunity exists for you guys moving forward? Yeah. Um, and, and I would say, um, I think the question is still out, right? Because part of what we're trying to understand is, is can capitalism not be extractive? And I don't know, right? I, I think we're building good products, we have clients, but I think there's a question of scale, right? And so what I wanted to do is I wanted to start a venture company. And the reason is because I thought scale was important. I didn't wanna be like in a nonprofit and there's amazing nonprofits, but for my models, 
we would help like 10 people, 1000 people. And I wanted to think about how did you help large groups of people? So I wanted to think about what could you do that had large scale? And then I wanted to understand how could you use technology for good, which is could technology be designed by people who are thinking about solving problems for poor black and brown people? Would, it, would you come with different solutions? Um, because oftentimes technology was harmful. Um, and so, so I wanted to understand that. And so then we just looked at what are the spaces and places that that pr provided the most opportunity. And I think the criminal justice system was it. Now, sometimes I wish we hadn't shown the, chosen the criminal justice system because it's such a mess. And, and there's so many um, more like questions of morality that there normally isn't. Because like, should you make any money in the criminal justice system? Should you, uh, and the system is so flawed. Um, so we just thought, I was I wanted to be able to know that we built technology with people I thought who needed it the most with the ability to grow with the most impact. And so that was what I looked for. And, and I thought it was very rare. We knew we raised 12 million in our basically seed round. And um, I knew that was unusual for someone who wanted to do good and to raise capital from traditional venture capital investors. So I got to ask, how the hell did you raise $12 million for a seed round? <laughs> well, we, one is we did it like a, we did one, uh, uh, we, we, were, we raised money before we had product or team and, and then raised like three months maybe later, the second, like we raised it like four and then I think seven point something. Um, uh, I, because I ran revenue and a lot of our investors were investors in the company that I ran revenue. I think that people said, oh, you get how to make money. You get how systems work. I mean, that's what I've discovered is that it's, it is in some ways it's pattern recognition, which is they go, oh, you ran revenue from zero to one of a company that's making money and that has large systems. You should be able to do that again. And so that's one thing. So I think because I ran revenue and um, I think people invested and a lot of our investors were investors in honor. Um, and then I think the problem is big enough and mostly the software is on the policing side. So I think people are like, there's a market that no one has conquered yet. And then I think we had investors who felt like if, if there were a solution that we would, that they had, um, I think a lot of our investors are very wealthy and felt like that this was an important problem for the world to solve. Um, one of our investors was like, you should raise 40 million. Also, because the problems are so big that there's a question, can you even figure it out with 12 million, right? And, um, and I was, and I, and I didn't think it made sense to raise that much, but I think there's a real question of like, when you're working with system this big, how much do you need? And what was the first product that you guys built at Promise? Yeah. The first product we built was a way for people to be able to, um, provide support to people who were getting out of jail without bail. And so it's often what's called pretrial software. And originally we thought we would be able to work with people who did like electronic monitoring or other things. And then we just discovered some of those businesses were so horrific that you could not work with them. So uh, the way that you should think about it is almost like a virtual assistant for someone. So we give them reminders about when their court dates are. We let them, they make sure they have an ability to communicate. We can do virtual meetings instead of having to go in. You can upload a photo, like whatever you need. So you don't have to go in. The goal is to keep someone in their home. And is that reliant on um, maybe like, I'll call it government buy-in? Like, do you have to integrate with the government systems on a county or state level? Yes, yes. So we do have to integrate with their systems. And um, some, like when we first started, we had to integrate with FileMaker Pro. A so government was using FileMaker Pro. And so um, it's, you know, like 
people where people are is very different levels of technology and software. Um, and, um, but I would say, I think that product requires that someone wants to get people out of jail. And I don't think there's a venture market of people who want to get people out of jail in the system. I think the reason we did the payments, uh, software is because I think we could do something where incentives aligned. I don't think our incentives are aligned. And part of why we've been very purposeful about where we sell is because I think even good software in the hands of not great people can end up being harmful. I, I tend to agree with you. So I think you're onto something there. Uh, and then how do you think about um, that question of like making money, not making money around criminal justice? Obviously you're running a for-profit business that's got equity investors. Uh, so at some point you've got to you know, figure that out. What's the, the kind of the current thought process or iteration? Yeah, I mean, the reason I thought we should be a for-profit instead of a non-profit is um, one, I, was, I, have, I have not seen uh, many nonprofits scale. And so the thing I was most interested in is scale. And um, the other thing that I was interested in is I think that capital, that government often aligns with capital more than it does like righteous morals. And so one thing I was like is, could you drive government behavior better by being a for-profit or a non-profit? And I think I still believe it's a, more likely to adapt to a for-profit. And um, so I thought, you know, what's the, the best institution, how to use it? And um, and also the skill set, like as someone, I, I went to Cal State Northridge, right? I didn't go to Harvard. I didn't go to Stanford. And I think I, I'm grateful for my education, but I also, I don't know that I was trained to work in this environment. And I wanted to understand how did you hire people based on a specific mission that were trained to work in an environment. So like, I love a street hustler. That's my favorite person to work with, which is how I identify. But I also knew I needed people who had an MBA and understood systems. And I think I've been able to attract those people much better in a for-profit world than I was in a nonprofit world. And so for me, it was, how do I have the greatest impact? And I think that staffing resources and um, vehicle, and that felt better in a for-profit. And I wish there was a way to, to do that in a nonprofit. I, you know, I, I, I don't know how to do that. I think it's also, what I don't like is the assumption also that like, people who want change should be broke and people who don't want like, the idea that it's like, we should tell all these people who want better systems for their family, you should be truthful in like, and your truth is living in poverty instead of your truth is like building generational wealth where you can take care of your family and take care of yourself. Like I just, I think the idea that goodness is determined by poverty is just the, like, I, I feel like that's a bag of goods we sell to like people who are already poor and to tell them there's honor in it. Well, it's usually the rich people peddling that uh, that story for sure. <laughs> You're honorable. <laughs> yeah, let me keep the money. You keep the honor, right? right. Uh, I got it. Um, so, so you've been at this for a while now, and uh, and you spent a lot of time really understanding the the nuances of a lot of the issues. I'm going to ask you two questions. One, what is the thing you've been most surprised by, and then what is the one thing that you've been the least surprised by that you've learned? I think I've been most surprised by um, how structured the system is to incarcerate people. That it's just, you know, like you hear the intellectual stuff, like where it's like, oh, bail reform and all these things. And I thought we were going to go and the gates were going to open up and we would say, look, we figured out a way so poor people don't have to be incarcerated. And everyone could say, oh, I get it. The statistics show, here's why you go to jail. We're going to automatically correct the system. And when people were just very transparent, like we want to keep those people in jail, that was surprising to me because it felt like only something I would have anticipated in a character on a like movie, right? Like it was just like so blatant 
that that was very surprising to me. Um, what I have been least surprised by um, is, uh, yeah, I've been least surprised by um, the technology that exists, that it is exactly what I thought it would be. And, um, and I think, yeah, I'm least like, I mean, it's not, it was not surprising to me that we run into FileMaker Pro and Microsoft Access all the time. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. And then I guess the last piece here is as you think about the people that you are helping, right? Those that are um, kind of being screwed over by the system, how much is there uh, around an obstacle of like, they just don't know how to use technology, they don't have a desire to use technology, um, or is it something where if you give them the tools, they are able to use this and you don't have to worry so much about like, what I always talk about like the human technology interface, right? Mm -hmm. If you give a 90 year old woman uh, a great piece of technology, if she just doesn't have the desire to ever pick it up, it doesn't matter, right? Mm -hmm. Same thing here is there's a lot of things where I see people uh, when they're given the tools, they run with it and then they're highly successful. Do you find that is the case or do you see much more around where you guys are having to educate on here's how the technology works, here's why it's important that you continue to use it and, and really even build that into the product maybe? Yeah, I think one is we do a lot of work about, you know, about design, like thinking about how the product is used and, and we learned very quickly that training was a very important part of what we did. Like the, you couldn't just sell software and say, good luck, see you later. You had to like spend a lot of time on training. Um, so you definitely do. But I think part of it I get is there, I, we haven't run into a, a number of amazing products. So I get why if I'm a government employee, why I'm not impressed or inclined to go follow this because I haven't seen impressive results. Like if I'm using, trying to adapt FileMaker Pro to manage thousands of people in the criminal justice system, like you think I want your new software to help connect to my FileMaker Pro that I can't use on my cell phone? Like it's like, you know, um, so... So, so one I get, I think on that side, what we find is people, um, the thing I find consistently is, is, is most, I've not run into anyone who wanted to go to jail. And so when you give them a tool to stay out of it, it is not shocking that they use it. It is like, what's been interesting is people started coming to us because they said your collection rate is so high. And uh, so uh, uh, authorities of uh, an agency came to us and said, hey, we want you to do collections. And I said, it's, it's really not brain surgery, which is if you make a system easy for people to pay and assume they want to pay, they actually pay. It is like, but if you think about government systems, like paying your taxes, like I got to go, I got to sign in, I got to have this specific credit card, I got to pay a fee to use it, I got to find somewhere it dies, you know, like, it's just good technology. It, it is shocking that, uh, that one of the breakthroughs is literally, hey, if they don't pay, they're going to go to jail. So if you make it easier to pay, they'll actually pay you. Like that is, that, that to me is the biggest takeaway from our conversation so far of like just how absurd the other side of this looks at. Right, because if we assume that people don't want to go to jail, then you assume they don't pay because they don't have the ability to, or they don't pay because it's not easy to pay. And when you correct for that, people perform better. It is not shocking. I mean, if I said to you, Netflix or any other service, the way we're going to run payments is you got to come down to an office you got to prove you need the service. You got to pay to park. You got to wait. And then, and if you don't pay, then you got to come back and you got to pay cash during specific hours. It's like, who would collect money that way? Nobody. Right. What about uh, on the, uh, what I'll call kind of customer acquisition channels? Like, where do you guys see the, the channels that work for you? 
um, the channels that work best for us, one is because government is usually our client, people like we get a phone number, we can just reach out to you, which is much different. Um, and what's great for us about government is usually most of our business comes from government agencies recommending us to another government agency, by and large. We don't have a sales team right now. We have like, it is almost always, we just hired our first salesperson. And, but otherwise all our growth has been from person to person. That's awesome. I, I love that. Uh, before I wrap up, I ask the same two questions to everybody, and then you're going to get to ask me one question to finish. Oh, okay. uh, the first is a little bit more serious. What is the most important book that you've ever read? What a great question. The most important book I've ever read. Um, I feel like Maya Angelou, I Know Why the Caged Birds Sing. And I think because it gave me a vision of what my life could be and just in a boldness that I saw that I hadn't seen before. I love that. I, I, uh, I recently had somebody on a podcast who was talking all about exposure being one of the most powerful things in the world. Just exposing people to ideas and what's possible uh, mm -hmm. can really kind of drive that. It sounds like that book did that for you. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. All right. A fun one. Aliens, believer or non-believer? Oh, total believer. Why? Because I know that you don't know everything the government's doing. <laughs> Almost everybody says they believe, but nobody has used that as the reason why. <laughs> that okay. is amazing. Yeah. You, you think that there's a high probability that there has been contact? Oh, no question. I mean, how arrogant for us to think we're the only life. I, that's usually the, the logic that most people use, right? Is like, hey, the world's a big place. But, uh, but right. saying that we don't know what the government's doing is pretty good. Up That, that might be up there. Yeah, it's like, who knows? <laughs> what, uh, what one question do you have for me to finish up? How could you be helpful to me? And uh, that's what I want to know. Ooh, uh, two things. Um, there's a lot of very well-connected people that come on the podcast. Mm -hmm. uh, and many of them are incredibly receptive to uh, generally being good humans. And uh, as I told you before the podcast started, uh, mm -hmm. things like bail reform, criminal justice reform, I think they uh, intellectually understand um, this is a problem the solutions can be created. Uh, I think a lot of them actually are in a position of like, I don't know what to do. So okay. like, that, like that, that's kind of a piece that you probably would have a great conversation right. with. Uh, and then the second is uh, you tell me whenever you want to come on and talk about uh, issues and, uh, and we can absolutely do it. There's probably more people than, uh, than I ever thought would, would listen to this. And, uh, and so you can uh, use this as your microphone whenever you want. Great, okay, perfect. Do people not ask that? I'm like, okay, how can you help me grow my company? <laughs> no, never. People are too scared. You, you know what you, you know what you just did is you hit me with the uh, the music industry. Hey, look, we're gonna exploit this, right? <laughs> How can you? I'm trying to grow a company. How can you help me grow my company? Look, it, it's um who, who is that? I think it's Mark Sustra from uh, Upfront Ventures. One time wrote a uh, a blog post, and he basically said, uh, "You don't get if you don't ask." Mm -hmm. right? Which is, which is uh, I don't know why uh, necessarily people need to read a whole blog post about it, but he did a great job laying it out and really explained to people like, hey, if you don't ask people for help, you're not going to get help. Totally. Okay, cool. That's I love helpful. it. All right, you let me know when you're going to come back on and uh, we'll talk about a couple other things afterwards. Okay, thanks so much.